You're listening to the Journey to Impact Fireside Chat Series with Gino Borges, curator of the Poetry of Impact, a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day, all people and planet can thrive together. Hi, I'm Gino Borges, curator of the Journey to Impact podcast series. Joining us today is Jennifer Kenning. Jennifer is the co-founder of Align Impact, an independent fiduciary specializing in building customized impact portfolios. Jennifer's also been named one of the private asset management's 50 most influential women in private wealth. She's a trailblazer, collaborator, and change maker who has quickly risen to become one of the most recognized voices in impact investing. Welcome, Jennifer. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, it's great to uh, have you as well. Uh, we have a lot of mutual friends together, and I wanted to uh, just begin with, I mean, wh- where are you today? And- and why are you there? Uh, well, currently I'm physically in Maui, uh, recharging. Um, sometimes when you're going 100 miles a minute, you want to kind of take a perspective and take a step back um, and have a little bit more time to create and envision, uh, both personally and professionally. Um, and then in terms of non-physical location, um, you know, wearing lots of different hats um, in the impact ecosystem, um, as well as on my own personal journey of things that I'm taking on that are deeply personal to me. Um, one of those things is I'm uh, looking to do my own bat mitzvah in January of 22. Um, I didn't do that at 13. And so I've been studying Hebrew and really diving into my spirituality and a core piece of my foundation, and I'm really excited on for that journey as well. Talk a little bit about this idea of, uh, I mean, you talk about sort of this white space. Uh, inevitably, you know, you're in Maui, you took a, um, you know, a break from your normal um, physical routine in, in Denver, Colorado for a bit. But um, I mean, talk about how you um, it, is white space is creating white space a practice for you, or is it something that you sort of default into when all of a sudden you realize, like, as I feel a little bit burned out? I mean, is this something you tend to stay ahead of, or you realize, like, I wish I could stay ahead of it, uh, but instead I always find out a little bit too late? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, so, what I mean by that is it usually is when I'm feeling like burnt out, I carve out the time to make it happen at a very disciplined level. Um, But I would also say I get ahead of it or it's a constant practice in two manners, Uh, really three actually. One is I have uh, something called time to think uh, every week. It's about an hour. It's white space. And it's really me tapping in and going wherever I think I need to go. I don't have an agenda. I don't know what I'm intending to create. It's just carving out that white space inside of my calendar to make sure that it does happen. Uh, the second way is I try to take a you know a long weekend or a week off um, at least quarterly so that I can actually take a step back, take a breath, be reflective, contemplative, 
and look ahead. And what that does is it allows me to know, hey, I have a place where I'm going to get to pause. And then third, probably my most profound practice, um, and actually came out of the pandemic, um, is that I use no technology for 24 hours at least every week. So I uh, observe uh, technology Shabbat. Mm-hmm. Uh, from sundown on Friday night until at least sundown on Saturday night, sometimes even till Sunday mid-morning. Um, and so I really tune out uh, the world and I'm really go in within myself. And that is my most insightful, creative, and best time for me to recharge during the week. Yeah. So I love Shabbat. Yeah, I've um, participated in it as well, even being non-Jewish. But when I'm with uh, my uh, Jewish friends and get to participate in it, it's, it is a lovely event. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the historical um, a reason for Shabbat? And then personally, like what comes out of it for you as a result? Like, I mean, what's it feel like when all of a sudden, uh, you know, the next day arrives and you've been unplugged instead? Unplugged technologically, but very potentially plugged in socially, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Shabbat in the Jewish uh, culture is really the beginning of the day of rest. So it's the beginning of the Sabbath. Um, Christians sometimes observe it on Sunday. Um, it is. It's actually one of the holiest commandments in Judaism. Um, if you're going to like take on one thing, sh- observing Shabbat and uh, really tuning, turning it off is that practice. Um, for me, I, I think it's it's personal to each person. Um, it's the ritual of slowing down. It's also the ritual of community. Um, so I do often host Shabbat with friends. Um, and we break bread together. We say the blessings. We light the candle. I try to put meaning into it to bring it into the 21st century. So uh, what was the sweetness of your week? What was the light or the hope of your week uh, or the richness of your week? Uh, What are the things that maybe have you down that you're uh, looking for inspiration, right? So more of a spin in today's environment. Um, And then, you know, I'd say on the other side of your question, um, you know, it's, you can take that practice as deep as you want to. Um, some people don't use any, uh, don't do any laundry or cook, or uh, they're very, very strict about kind of what they're doing on a Saturday, for example. Um, I'm not as strict. I kind of really lean towards what's going to fill up, fill me up. Not so much another rigorous plan that I need to have. Um, and I always come out of it just slowing down and really getting perspective and making time for the things that are important that I often lose sight of when we're going from thing to thing or zoom to zoom or meeting to meeting or obligation, obligation during the week. Sure. Was there anything in particular, uh, you mentioned a little, just, um, a bit earlier about this idea of, uh, your forthcoming, uh, mitzvah and you talked about Shabbat growing out of the pandemic. Um, was, was there sort of an enabling a moment? Uh, was there some identification with Judaism in advance of these events, but just always felt light to you? And there was an, a moment in your life or that really sort of, uh, like tipped it over to, um, 
more of a devotional uh, pattern? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I grew up both in Judaism and Christianity. My mother's Jewish, my father's Christian. Um, so I grew up going to Hebrew school and Sunday school, which is super confusing as a child. <laughs> um, and then in my, and I went to, when I went to high school, I went to a boarding school that was predominantly Christian. So I tended to gravitate towards there. And then I went to Southern Methodist University, also Christian. Um, and then in my twenties, I started to explore religion, like from a religious standpoint, um, and really came to wanting to study religion in my twenties and thirties, um, around what are the seven major religions? How do they actually exist in similarities? What are the differences, et cetera? I'm by no means an expert. That's a lifelong journey, a lifelong goal of mine to continue to study religion and spirituality. I'd say in my 30s, I was very much on a spiritual journey. Um, to answer your exact question, the tipping point for me uh, was when Jason Spindler died um, about two and a half years ago, or two years and a couple of months ago now, um, in the terrorist attack in Nairobi. Uh, Jason was one of my dearest friends a collaborator. He's really responsible for me leaving my prior career and booing in the impact space 100%. Um, when Jason passed away, uh, it was like hitting a brick wall um, on many, many different levels. Um, and when I was at Jason's funeral, which was really grounded in Jewish practices, it was the time there I felt the most solace uh, after grieving for a seven to 10 day period. And in Jewish tradition, we usually bury within 24 to 48 hours, but because of the way things transpired with Jason, it took us about a week to nine days to bury Jason. Um, and it was in that moment that I really said, I want to lean into Judaism. I want to lean into those practices. I'd also been to Israel uh, the prior year with Reality and Schusterman, um, looking at my leadership inside of biblical practices. And so I felt like the worlds were colliding. And then uh, I'm intending to have my bat mitzvah on the three-year anniversary of Jason's passing um, as a celebration and as hope and as a way of uh, honoring him and my practice as well as the culture and as a new beginning. Um, so. Some people get to choose their bat mitzvah date. Some people get it based on their 13th birthday. I chose it based on Jason. It is a Saturday. It seemed to be serendipitous. Yeah. Um, I also think the Torah portion of that day, which is just random, is also serendipitous. So mm -hmm. we'll see. And it may, it may move, but that's the intention. Um, so there is some significance about it. And um, I'm glad that I'm kind of going back to my roots. Yeah. So um, a couple of things come up for me as, as you shared the story about um, your transition into Judaism in terms of amplifying it, bringing it more alive. Um, it, 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 was a con it, it was a result of a very personal loss for you. <clears throat> Has loss been um, a part of your life before this in a way that made as dramatic of a shift for you when Jason passed away? And if so, what did that look like? Um, and yeah, let me pause there for a second. 
Yeah, really great question. Um, I'd say yes and no. Um, so I lost my very best friend um, when I was eight years old. Um, and it was pretty tragic as well. Um, I lost my grandmother um, around the age of 37. She was my soulmate. She still is and huge inspiration in my life. Um, and then I tragically have lost five really key people to me since then. So grief in the last five to seven years has been like a constant for lack of better words. Um, so I do think that's part of life, right? It's, there's a circular nature of it. We birth, live, die, the rotation completes itself and starts again. Right. And one thing we all know for sure is that we're all going to have that common experience of grief and losing someone. No one's immune to that, right? No one gets out of that without that happening. Um, and I think this one, these five people in particular, uh, were people that were younger, were like had their whole life in front of them. Um, it puts your mortality into question and really has it come front and center. And I think for me, it just got me really present to the fragileness of life and how do I spend my time and where do I spend my energy and what am I ultimately committed to? What are my values, et cetera? So that, so the topic of loss and the experience of loss, loss have always been a fascination with me. I I did my dissertation on loss, uh, actually, um, and then I've lost both of my parents already. And so I'm already in that orphan feeling. What I'm interested in is knowing how, and this is sort of a navigation that I always find myself in, is, is that I can feel the finitude of my existence now as a result of this. Like, mm-hmm. I, I know that I'm not going to be able to do everything that I thought I was going to do like I did. 15 or 20 years ago, when you think all the world's possible. How is that both a benefit knowing and somewhat of a curse at the same time? But let me uh, just get get a feel in terms of how Jennifer's day looks like, week looks like, or how you travel through time as a result of knowing that time is, is closing, in essence. And we can choose a lot of different metaphors and feel free, feel free to reframe it. But I think this is a fascinating question, especially for people in impact uh, in particular. Um, so I'm just really interested in how it's fundamentally, and you can broach your professional side of things and you can keep it personal, but I'm just interested in how you use this, these moments of loss to, you know, to move through space and time. It is a fascinating question. It's really tricky for me because my scarcity conversation in life is around time. Like I don't ever have enough time, right? I think a lot of us could say that, right? Um, how should I spend my time? Um, it's interesting. So um, about seven years ago, around the time that I co-founded Align with Brent, um, I was so addicted to time, you know, that I stopped wearing a watch because I was on a yoga meditation retreat and I told the person running the retreat that the retreat was two days too long. <laughs> and he looked at me 
And he's like, I don't think that's anyone else's experience here. We can survey them because they're here. I want you to just consider you're the only person that still has a watch on as if you have somewhere you need to be. Yeah. And so he challenged me to take my watch off for the remainder of the retreat. So for three days and that I could put my watch back on at the end of the retreat. So this was October 28th, Uh 2014. You might say, how does she remember the date? Well, there's two reasons for that. One's a superpower and one is because the retreat ended on October 31st. And I still have never put a watch on to this day because I found that I was addicted to time and that I would always get to the meetings I needed to get to and the things because I had time on my computer. I had people to tell me there's certain things like you still can get through life. Yeah. And I'm a very punctual on time person and function in time. Um, so really interesting for you to ask that question. Um, you know, I don't, I've lived. Um, so let me take this in a couple directions. I've lived as if time is finite and it isn't promised for a long time. Um, one, I lost somebody at the age of eight. So I kind of knew that young. Uh, two, um, I had severe depression in my 20s. And part of coming out of that, which is why I'm an impact today, one of the reasons is that we're not promised tomorrow and what are we here to do? Um, and then three is really as you mature and get older and as you go on your journey, you start to get really laser focused on where should I spend my time, what gives me energy, and what's really worthy of my time. Uh, by no means imperfect. I'm not, it's something I'm going to continue to work on for another decade or two at least, let's hope. Um, but for me, since the loss, just to tie the time and the loss and the grief together, um, as I often kind of pause and ask the people who have gone before me, like, give me a sign or what would you tell me? And I try to listen. And the overarching theme I often hear is, slow down, enjoy the journey, not the destination. And it's, it's short. And if I knew it was short, I'd do it differently. So I struggle in that realm too, because in some ways to the outside world and people that know me really well in this ecosystem, it, it would might appear that I'm doing it exactly the way I would want to do it. But there's also a tug and a pull of so many other things I want to do in life as well as be committed to what we're all creating as an ecosystem. So there's the tug of time and where do you spend your time? Well, so and how do you navigate uh, the reality of your front facing self, which has outcomes and calendars <laughs> and um, achievement targets, goal targets, prior revenue targets, portfolio targets. I mean, We're just targeting everything in the exteriorized world. And now you put that in relation to what you just shared, who Jennifer's soul is carrying this awareness around. And yet in the 
on a day-to-day basis, probably before this call, you already had some of that exteriorized experience. And after this call, how do you sort of navigate the space in between the awareness of what you just shared and what and the demands of the exteriorized world? Um, a couple of things uh, in practice. One is um, I know what I need to do day in and day out and get laser focused and just make sure I'm really prepared so that I don't have any additional distractions. And then I know what I need to do to recharge to be able to balance both worlds. Um, so I, I am an avid soul cycler. I do a lot of walking. I do a lot of meditation. I'm an avid reader. I read a couple books at least a month. Um, so I find that I get to recharge with certain things in my life that are so polar opposite of what I do in my career or my daily life. Um, it's actually a good example. And there's also, I know there's pros and cons and everyone has different stereotypes, but I'm going to use SoulCycle as an example because it's really been a healing and a tool for me. There's no competition there, right? Peloton, Flywheel, others, other sports we could do. There's competition. There's a scoreboard. SoulCycle, we, we go to the beat of the music in community. It's actually about can you be in community and can you ride with the person next to you in the same motion with the same beat? and lift them up? Can I generate enough energy to be able to transform the person next to me or vice versa of whatever day they're having? And I love that because I don't need, as you said, metrics, scoreboards, targets. I actually just need uh, slowing down. How does it fill me up? And then the other thing is, um, so I'm actually an avid handwriting, handwritten notes uh, letter writer. Um, that's another way that I, there's no targets there. I do it from place of gratitude. I want to acknowledge somebody. Um, I really take pride in my personal relationships. Um, it's also often a joke that I have 99 best friends and my friends are like, how do you make us all feel important? It's in that personal relationship side of it, which balances out the targets, the metrics, the goals, the challenges of the kind of front-facing business side of the equation. Mm-hmm. So while on this topic of loss, I'm gonna, uh, uh, I want to ask you, what, when was Align Impact uh, founded? 2014. 2014. Let's say, for instance, that you were faced with this reality of uh, Align Impact has an expiration date of 2024, the 10-year project for Jennifer. How would that uh, change and influence how you approach what Align is doing today? Maybe you can just give people a thumbnail sketch of what Align does. And then in, in 2025, what would you be doing? that you may know what you would already be doing. Um, And I'm always interested in that question because we sort of assume that everything we start just, we're just feeding it to last forever without any awareness around it being a perishable, perishable service to some extent, right? 
and where it has its own time and place. And it's okay for something not to last forever. Like it spoke to the moment. So I'm interested in what and how it aligned and your world would change on a day-to-day basis should you know that it was going to expire in 2024 and what you would likely be doing after that. So essentially another yeah. moment. Uh, I actually don't look at that as a loss. I just look at that as evolution. Good point. It's either lived its course and it's now in its next evolution, whatever that looks like. Um, I also, and most people know this, I, I look at this as a journey and there, there could come a time where I am not running or even involved in a line. Um, So this is not, this does have an expiration date in some ways for Jen. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope it lives on for what we do for clients. Essentially, just very quickly, we help uh, clients build impact strategies and implement those strategies in a customizable way that's really tailored to them. And then we work to meet them where they're at on their journey and mm-hmm. how they actually want to go about uh, doing the impact they want to do in the world. Everyone's different, everyone has a different definition, everyone has different objectives. And everyone works differently. Uh, so we're not trying to put you in a, flit, a sandbox that you actually don't want to be in. Yeah. Um, so we like to go to the sandbox they're already playing in and then help them create inside of that sandbox and have their vision come to life. So what I would want to see is that this is just how we invest. And there isn't actually a need for a separate entity like a line because we're just investing this way. And that everyone that's already on this journey or wants to be on this journey has all the resources they need to be able to go on the journey. So in some ways, we've put ourselves out of business, um, which would be awesome, (laughs) right? I often say uh, nonprofits, social enterprises, even companies like Align or B Corp and, you know, really have a, a social mission. Our goal is to put ourselves out of business, which means we've actually made a dent or we've we transformed something that wasn't transformed before. Um, so hopefully that answered your first question. Yeah. Um, the second question, I actually prefer that question, just so you know, more so than where do you see a line in three to five years? I actually really prefer that question to what you just asked. Then where do you see it in three to five years or 10 years? Because as you and I both know, and as do our listeners, Time is moving so fast. The space is moving so fast. The world is moving so fast. Whatever we do over the next decade is imperative for future decades, right? And our children, grandchildren, and really the planet, right? That I'd prefer to say, hey, we have a finite amount of time. The clock is ticking. Let's go and let's get it done. Uh, In terms of what I would be doing, um, I think there's a lot of things I could see myself doing. Um, I think the I like to do things in three, so I'm just going to give you kind of three things that I could see myself doing. Um, and somebody might say after, you could do those things today, and you do do those things today. One is I could see myself being an educator in a more formal setting. Um, one, because I want to use education from an experience and a practitioner place as well as from the fundamentals place. And how do you marry the two? And really have uh, all generations, not just the next generation, but all generations use education as a tool to continue to explore and be curious and really grow as humanity. 
the second thing I could see myself doing is investing in women and underrepresented communities uh, for finance and tools that really drive our systems forward for real systems change. Um, I'd love to empower and be a mentor and have the space to help future entrepreneurs uh, navigate because I know what it's like. Um, and it's oftentimes on the entrepreneurial journey and at the top, it's lonely. Um, and I think you do need your tribe and your community. Um, and then last is really, you know, going more into the field and really understanding why the systems are broken. That's where I get my best, uh, inspiration is when I'm with people in the field and I've been to dozens and dozens of countries and seen poverty on six continents. And I really believe there's power in taking a bucket bath and sleeping on a a mud floor and sitting with a woman who has had three children at the age of 16 and was married off at 13 and being able to have empathy for where she sits, hear her story, and then give her the tools for the future. And the last one I'd just say is more being closer to the impact than you are as an allocator or an educator. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that really has stuck out to me is is that there's even a tendency for our field to over-cerebralize itself, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Over-cerebralize, over-digitize, over... there's just sort of this infant, this emphasis on the um, uh, on sort of the metric, um, and you know I've danced back and forth with this, and uh, there's the evangelicals on both sides, right? Um, I see, I'm on both sides, and where um, I guess. When, like, I hear you sort of talk about your future, it still involves being involved in impact. It's sort of in accentuating your existing capacities that probably aren't being accentuated as much now because you're in charge of strategy of an organization. You're behind a computer, less time in the field probably than what you want, less time educating than what you want. But you're probably still in the field a little bit, still educating a little bit. But tons of time and strategy and organizational development and human development for, um, I mean, the team. What is it that you think is going to take for um, the impact space to actually stay in front and be um, both, like you said, you want it to be normal for the masses to some extent. So an expiration date would be like, great, a line has done its job because now it's been normalized. But what would it have to do? What qualities would the impact movement have to have to be a part of the evolving, ongoing, always seeding sort of the new frontier of the relationship between, um, you know, multiple dimensions and finance? I mean, right now, it's always talked about, largely talked about an ESG context. And now all of a sudden, the mainstream is starting to get educated on that and and have their cookie cutter frameworks uh, and so forth. What I'm really interested in is like, what's it, what qualities does it have today 
that will outlast that and keep it unique? Or what qualities need to be added to the ecosystem to make sure that it merely doesn't get appropriated into the matrix in a way that um, loses a part of what I feel is sort of this relationship component? One-dimensional finance is largely transactional, right? Yep. And, and one of the things I love about the impact space is I like, I really get to know people. Um, I was originally trained in one-dimensional finance, burned out in six months, and then that set me on my journey. I was like, this just stinks. I was like, I'm not interested in this. It's just hollow for me. And then I got reintroduced to it in my mid-30s about that relationship component. And then I'm meeting folks like you and you know Joel, Joel Solomon had a huge impact on me. I was like, wow, you actually can do this. You can actually live a whole, be a whole person, show your whole self, and be an investment manager and be talking finance and no one's going to run away from you because you're not wearing a suit and so forth. So I'd like to just get your take as, as somebody that's inside the space and yet reflective on the space, like what are we doing right? And what is it that probably needs to be added in order for us to sort of evolve uh, moving forward? So, yeah, let's start with what we're doing right. I think we're, um, continuing to evolve as society evolves. Um, and what I mean by that is that I think we're continuing to innovate new products, new ways of looking at things and new ways of tackling systems change. I think we're also doing a great job of collaborating uh, more so than other industries that we see, right? So where can we collaborate to really drive the change that's going to be best collectively? Um, and then I think we're also doing a good job um, as an ecosystem of bringing people along rather than alienating them, right? That the pie is For just sure. as big or bigger. It's not because we bring more people in, the pie is smaller, right? That's a different mentality, as you and I both know, than Wall Street or Main Street, mm -hmm. right? So I think those are the things we're amongst many other things, but those are the things that come to mind right away. I think where we could do a better job, and it goes back to your question or your comment around metrics and targets and challenges and goals and the way we operate, is we can't lose the empathetic side of having a human-to-human -human interaction, conversation, uh, collaborative solutions-based thinking that we need to remember at the end of the day, and even the planet, the trees, the soil, right? The animals. It's a there's an exchange of energy and there's empathy that we can't lose because then we'll be just like everything else. It'll be very transactional. I think the other thing that we could do a better job of is really going to the why as much as we go to the how and the what and the who. So the why is going to be grounded. It's almost like the spine, but it's going to evolve. It's not static, right? If you say, Jen, why do you do what you do or why are you who you are? The core values of my personal life and the company are very much aligned, no pun intended, because that's intentional, right? You, you, you mentioned, hey, what I would be doing in 2025 has some element of what I'm doing today. That's because I'm really blessed. That only came out of severe depression in my 20s. 
you it sounds like you had a summer experience in finance and then came to it in your 30s is because I already went to the dark side, already went to the bottom, already had my realization at 28 that the money and the titles and climbing the Wall Street ladder wasn't going to be enough for me. So a sense, I'm trying to live out my values and where I spend my time. So what I would be doing in 2025 and what I'm doing today have similarities because I'm living out what I believe I was put here to do, right? So I think all of us need to often check in with why are we doing this? Why do we get out of bed in the morning? And when I say us, I even mean investors. Why is this driving my portfolio or how I make family decisions or how I'm bringing the next generation into the family philanthropy or the family decision making or how I'm actually, why I'm choosing this over this um, in terms of my prioritization system? Wow. I want to end right there. I think that's such a jewel, the emphasis on. We're getting the abundance part right, uh, the feeling of abundance, and totally agree. Everybody's sharing in this inner space, and no one feels like something's being taken away from them. And because the opportunity is so much larger than us few mortals that are actually in it at the moment. And then this other thing about the empathy side, the relationship component, and that uh, sure you can allocate you can allocate money according to an algorithm. But to realize that people have real clear preferences and needs, and there's reasons why people want to do X, Y, and Z. And then to always revisit the why part, uh, because when like you put the why around, around the equation, it all of a sudden humanizes uh, the experience on earth. And we just happen to have these material resources that we move through the world. Um, that seemingly benefits us and benefits others sort of as a result. Um, And to not think that it's just sort of anonymously moving through, or I should say um, without reverb, right? Um, And so I really want to thank you for packaging it up in uh, the way you you did. And, uh, you know, I mean, the impact space definitely benefits from, I mean, your contributions, uh, not just on the, you know, on the platform side, but, this story will will resonate uh, for sure. And so thank you so much for sharing it. Thank you for having me. And if I could just end with one thought, yeah. if we're really going to transform the world for 7.8 billion on our way to 9 billion people and not at the expense of the planet, we need everyone, everyone. So the tent can never be too big. And if everyone really drove into what's the one thing I would move the needle on and why, and we did that collectively, it would radically look different. Absolutely agree. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com.